0: Hey, Dirt Rich listeners, it's Katie. Before Jared starts the show, I want to highlight an upcoming event we have with today's guest, Dana Burtness. On August 21st, the Sustainable Farming Association will be hosting, get ready for this alliteration here, a Methods of Pastured Pork and Poultry Production Field Day at Nettle Valley Farm and Wholesome Family Farms in southeastern Minnesota. This field day is free and open to all, and Jared and I will be there too. Be sure to register so we can make sure that we'll get you a lunch and the link is in the show notes and of course it's also on the SFA website event calendar and on our Soil Health page too. So if you'd like to learn more after what you hear on today's episode, be sure to check out those details and maybe we'll see you there.
1: Hey there and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, we're going to have a discussion with Dana Burtness. Dana was actually one of the first farms that I was able to visit when I came on board with SFA, and I was just so impressed with the work she's doing at building a pasture pork production and marketing enterprise while really focusing on soil health. She also prioritizes helping beginning farmers get into the business by opening up her farm as an incubator farm. There's a ton of really awesome things happening down in Spring Grove, Minnesota at Dana's Farm, and I'm looking forward to hearing about them today. So Dana, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm grateful for you setting some time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. But uh, before we get into really the details of your operation, maybe give a brief overview of your farm, and then I'd love to hear about your history as to how you got to where you are today.
0: Sure. Well, yeah, like you said, I'm Dana Burtness. My husband, Nick Wynn and I run Nettle Valley Farm. We are a pastured pig-centric um, uh, farm. We've got our land base is about 70 owned acres and then about uh, 10 rented acres down in southeastern Minnesota near Spring Grove. And yeah, we have we started with three pigs sort of on a whim a few winters, well, a few winters, uh, seven seven years ago, I guess, and have grown um, (laughs) time flies. And uh, this year we'll be finishing 75 uh, mixed breed heritage hogs on pasture, specifically using the wagon wheel hub model of pasturing pigs. And like you mentioned, we also run an incubator farm program. Um, We're just finishing up our third year of that program and looking forward to uh, welcoming a new group of incubatees Next year, if we find a find folks who'd be a good fit, and I guess other enterprises, uh, we I wouldn't call it an enterprise, but we do maintain a small flock of pastured egg layers um, that we sort of we keep ourselves in eggs, and then also um, hard boil and then freeze all the eggs for egg or uh, pig training treats. Yeah, um, nice. But that's that's sort of the scoop. That's us in a nutshell.
1: Awesome, and then going back to your history, so you said you started this off seven years ago um you didn't uh, really start or come from a hog production system tell me about how you got to this where you are now as far as location and, and and doing what you're doing
0: yeah quite the opposite i grew up in the suburbs of the Twin Cities uh, in Coon Rapids. I always like to tell people I didn't even learn how to mow a lawn until I was 19, (laughs) which is sort of embarrassing, but I share that because I want to make sure that other people who didn't grow up on farms know that you, you know, it's hard, but you can can get into it. Uh, My path to farming has been sort of a long and winding road. On a whim, I did a farm internship when I was 19 at Foxtail Farm and just totally fell in love with veggie farming. And so when I went back to, I was after my freshman year of college, I went back to school and started a student farm. After graduating, I did sort of a detour through the nonprofit world. I worked through at a farmer's market and a, a food policy think tank. But the whole time I just really wanted to get back into farming. So mm. did a few enterprises um, with vegetable farming. So I ran uh, a small peri-urban uh, market garden, out in Minnetonka and then did a couple years of um, wholesale veggie farming in Northfield, Minnesota. But then I got a really bad case of Lyme disease, and I actually had to quit farming for a couple of years. Around that time is when I started learning about permaculture, restoration agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and realized that sort of, you know, my energy levels for the rest of my life are probably gonna be limited. I'm never gonna have that. <laughs> 20-something vegetable farming energy anymore. Those days are done. Um, But realized that broad acre pastured livestock farming was something that matched up with my new interests and my new energy levels. And about that time, we started looking for a farm to call our own. And actually, I'm the sixth generation in my family to farm in Houston County. Hmm. So Basically, ever since my, at least on my dad's side, since they uh, um, got off the boat from Norway, they've lived in this area of the state. And so I felt like we had a connection here and the Driftless area is gorgeous. And we got really lucky. We were able to um, find a bank and then get uh, some FSA financing to buy 70 acres of raw land um, down here and made a go of it. It uh, really helps. My husband works off the farm full-time. I'm sort of the, the main farmer. Um, but yeah, I guess that was 2015. I should have these dates memorized. But <laughs> the main takeaway is that we haven't been here all that long, but we're starting to sort of get a good foundation, getting to learn the land. And like I said, we started with three pigs and
1: mm-hmm. have grown since since then. So when did Nick come into the picture, and what was his thoughts on the farming uh- enterprise or the, the the potential of being a farmer
0: oh yeah thanks match.com i know <laughs> i met match or nick and i nick and i met on match.com when i was still living in the city and in minneapolis and doing the nonprofit thing sure and at that point i was actually trying to start the minnesota's first commercial scale rooftop farm and so i guess when nick met me i was already sort of talking about farming just still thinking about urban farming
1: so he knew what he was getting into <laughs> or he had an idea he, anyway kind of, he knew what
0: he, <laughs> yeah 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 um but he's he's lucky his his current job um is fully remote um okay. he's a computer guy and so he can sure. he can do his work from anywhere but no i he's just kind of he's just kind of game he's one of those people have you met him
1: i don't know that i have I'm not sure that I have.
0: Okay. Uh, He's just very, he just loves life is always looking on the, he just like really uh, does what there is to do. Um, Nick is like took to to country living really, really well. He loves all the fresh air. He loves being able to come out of his basement office and help me move fence for an hour or, you know, catch Mm -hmm. a pig that needs some antibiotics or something and then go back down and return to his super cerebral, uh job so i think he really loves it i asked him the other day if if uh if i died <laughs> would he would he go back to living in minneapolis and he was like no i don't think so i think i'd just stay out here so i think he really likes it
1: that's awesome would he keep the hog operation going i'm just curious now you know no. okay <laughs> yeah. yeah awesome i don't think so no
0: i don't uh, that's really my deal like he loves yeah. it and he's he's just as much of a farmer as i am like mm-hmm. we could not run our farm without. Our teamwork, like he does all the sort of underappreciated stuff. Like he does all the bookkeeping and the mm. taxes, and he's my you know right hand man whenever it comes to a job that really needs two people. Sure. Um, but it's not my passion. Yeah, it's sure. it's really my passion.
1: No, that's that's awesome, and I can tell just having visited you and talked. It, it is a passion, and so let's talk a little bit more about that than the production side. You started off raising, you, you talked about your wagon wheel, which I want you to explain a little bit uh, in, just a, in just a bit, but you started off not in the wagon wheel pastured pork production model. How did you start raising hogs? If I recall correctly, you started in the in the woods, in the valley, um, and why did you switch to a, yep. the method you're raising them now?
0: Yeah, so it doesn't really have a name like the the wagon wheel hub model, but I guess sort of the standard pasturing pig idea is that... Pigs, pigs need a lot of infrastructure to support them. So it's not just like a, a ruminant where you've got some water and some mineral where you schlep mm-hmm. around. Um, pigs need, you know, they've got their grain supplement. They've got their water. They've got, um, they need a lot of shade, a lot of shelter. They've got their fencing. So before we would, um, when we got started with 10 pigs, we actually just had all of their stuff surrounded by an electric fence. And then... Would move all of that stuff every week, Um, but we are noticing that there's just you know pigs are like little rototillers, as many of your listeners will know. They there's just a lot of disturbance anytime you have pigs, and we noticed that there was just way too much disturbance for our tastes. You know, we we were trying to be a soil health focused farm, and I noticed. Especially around where their uh, where their feeders were, around their waterers, especially where they tried to make wallows, there was just too much compaction and disturbance. And I noticed that certain in certain areas, the soil health was getting worse, hmm. not better. And that's not what we're about. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you know we have a forecast of five days of rain. When you're yeah. using that sort of standard model, you don't have the ability to take the pigs off of pasture. And especially in a newer, more newly developed pasture where there isn't that nice thick sod layer, they can just liquefy a pasture in a couple of hours. So it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, just keep them moving. Well, okay, yeah. when you've had five days of rain and they've liquefied the pasture, well, all right, how are you gonna move the the feeder in the water without getting your tractor in there and just compacting the, the soil? And then as far as just handling facilities too, it's just really tough to scale. Um, In my opinion, it's really tough to scale when you're fully on pasture. I know people do it.
1: And that is a real challenge. I I mean, I imagine we we see that sometimes even with cattle, with the rainfall, it's a challenge. But additionally, your environment and your context, if it was a hillside with a lot of woods and and brush and shrubs, which makes it difficult to get in. And a lot of just the context of your area and your land base makes that even more of a challenge, I would imagine.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah, seven the seventy acres we own, our little valley is um has oh gosh, like one and a half acres of tillable um <laughs> out of the whole thing. It's mostly uh, wooded hillsides and then um the, the valley bottom is somewhat flat um mm-hmm. open pasture. But no, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean <laughs> I do miss being in the woods because the pigs are pigs are woodland creatures. I mean they love shade. Mm-hmm. They love to to root around and eat all the different um, grubs and roots. And they loved the diversity of getting to eat what was in the woods. But, you know, farming, what is what else is livestock farming, but sort of a, da- a dance and a balance between farmer happiness, livestock happiness, and soil health happiness. And sometimes prioritizing, if if we were only focused on, pig happiness (laughs) i think we uh might end up going back to that model because they just there's nothing better than pigs being able to roam freely in the woods Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily what the woods need and then when it comes time to weighing pigs or loading pigs that's not necessarily maximum farmer happiness either so that's where we've sort of transitioned to the the wagon wheel hub
1: yeah and talk about that a little bit what does that look like
0: Yeah. So the wagon wheel hub idea is that you have sort of like a wagon, old timey wagon wheel. You've got the central hub and then the spokes all around it. So what that looks like um, in a pasture pig operation is a central either barn or fenced in sacrifice area where their food and their water, their wallow ends up staying as sort of a sacrifice area. And then you use Electronet to make Pasture paddock hubs or uh, um, uh, spokes around that hub mm-hmm. Our in our context um, with our land. It ends up being more of a uh, hot air balloon <laughs> because <laughs> the the basket of the hot air balloon is where it, we turned an old hay shed um, into their sort of central hub area, and then all their pasture paddocks stretch out to the north. So we're grazing. 75 pigs, well, currently 80 pigs on uh, a little over eight acres of rented tillable land. Our farm is very weird. Our 70 acre valley is cut off from our actual three acre homestead. Um, we have the most like confusing property lines in Houston County. Um, so our, our uh, neighbors who own the farmland that surrounds our little homestead have uh, been kind enough to rent us a chunk of land that connects our homestead to our valley. Sure. So if it's dry enough and it's a good enough acorn year, my plan is to flash graze the pigs um, down in the valley to get the acorns. But yeah, generally we have yep a uh, uh, t- uh, twenty-eight by seventy-two hay shed that um, we have two feeders that stay in place and then some automatic smidly waterers and then we do a mix of deep bedding. And then just sort of a light dusting of bedding, depending on what the pigs want. And then the pigs either graze right around the wagon wheel hub, or we make them a laneway other than electric netting. And they their paddocks are generally half an acre to three quarters of an acre at a time.
1: And how long or how often are you moving them through paddocks? How long are they staying on paddocks? And-
0: yeah, it totally depends on their size, soil moisture, the forage that's available in there, but generally no
1: longer than a week. So that you just brought up something that I hadn't even considered is the forage that's in there. What is your forage base that you're using and grazing them on annuals, perennials and species? I guess you can get as specific as you want, but what does the forage base look like?
0: Oh, it's just a current, it's a, it's a constant, uh, experiment every year. We're trying something a little different. Sure. Um, right now are the eight, seven, eight acres is divided into four chunks. There's a, a perennial, uh, hay strip. That was existing before we started uh, renting the the land. Uh, right now, about a third, the third of the remaining um, tillable is a warm season annual mix that has sunflowers, buckwheat, teff, facelia, uh, or how do you say that? Facelia, facelia, whatever the, I think uh, it's
1: how I've heard it called, but I, I don't know. Okay. I, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's one of those words I've only read. Um we played around on the green cover seed um, smart mix sure. calculator and made a really uh, fun, diverse mix that we planted. And it's just gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. I love being out there and seeing all the sunflowers and seeing all the pollinators on the the buckwheat. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to graze the pigs on it. We'll see how they do. Sure. And then the other two thirds of that, the rest of that tillable field is a mix of... Um, Lots of clovers, small grains, um, grazing greens, which what? that's what we call Dwarf Essex Rape. They love, um, yeah, grazing greens or grazing kale. Mm. Just Dwarf Essex Rape is such a gross name. They just need, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> needs a rebrand. Right. Definitely yeah. need a rebrand.
1: So the hogs are, they enjoy like Forbes and Brassicas is a preference of them you've seen that? Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: They love it. They, I'd say their number one thing that they love to eat is actually dandelions. Yep. That is, bar none, their favorite thing to eat um, mm. as far as a forage goes. And then they're, they're really loving clovers, any kind of clover. White clover, mm. they do seem to root up quite a bit. Um, and they, they will take some bites of grasses. Right now, we've got a lot of forage chicory that's huge. You know, it's four or five feet tall and in bloom, and they strip all the lower leaves off of it. And okay. we're hoping that we get a lot of uh, reseeding going with that. Um, one thing I've noticed, we we did try to, we did an experiment where we planted a bunch of small grains to let them mature and hog down, and they get pretty excited about barley and oats, but they will not show much excitement about wheat and rye. So we learned, learned that there. We feed them uh, a free choice, unlimited, 24-7 mix of um, peas and barley, a certified organic pea and barley feed. Mm-hmm. And so- Going forward, I think we'll just focus on lush, fresh forages as opposed to trying to have them hog down many of the sort of like grains, just because I don't know, omnivore stomach doesn't necessarily digest whole grains all that well. And so I think we're going to just in the future, prioritize nutrients over calories in our forage mixes and other benefits like soil health and um, pollinators and other things.
1: Well, that's just awesome that you're able to observe that. I I mean, that's something we try to talk to whenever I'm working with farmers is the power of observation and seeing what what's happening out there and what your livestock prefer and preferences so that you can manage accordingly. If you weren't paying attention, you would have continued to potentially plant something that wasn't maybe being utilized to its fullest. And now you can choose and pick and choose your mixes based on what your your animals are preferring.
0: Another thing we really target for our forage mixes is, so we we have pigs on the farm. We're, we're finish only, so we don't farrow. Mm-hmm. So we get pigs from June and they stay on the farm through November. So there's quite a bit of, quite a few species in our forage mixes that end up actually going to seed before their main pasture season of July. And so that's another mm-hmm. thing that we prioritize is trying to get a bunch of stuff that's going to either overwinter and then go to seed right in the spring so that we don't actually have to reseed much of anything. We're sort of uh, trying to think like a weed and really huh. uh, loading up this, the the soil seed bank with um, a bunch of seeds that will germinate when the time is right. And um, so cut down on our, our, our crop
1: seed bill. That's fascinating. So you're doing an annual seeding mix without needing the annual seeding. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Huh, we, really cool. we definitely
0: still... F- frost seed, frost seed and, and, and things, but we, we are definitely like building up that, that flywheel in the, the, the seed bank.
1: Oh, that's so cool. How has this then compared to how you started off? How would you say it's improved your quality of life, your soil health management, the pig's quality of life? How has it affected everything? I know you mentioned if you were purely pig focused, you maybe would have carried on in the way you were doing it before, but how has this switch to the wagon wheel system uh, changed your business model and your operation?
0: Hardly a day goes by where I don't just thank my lucky stars that we had the infrastructure and the ability to switch over to this model. I mean, when you have just a giant storm coming in, or if you've got five days of rain in the forecast, or you've got a sick pig, um, or even something as simple as when you need to weigh all the pigs to make sure that they're growing and monitor their parasite load, just having that infrastructure in place helps me really sleep at night soundly. Mm -hmm. And know that, okay, if I wake up and I check all the pigs and they've got, somebody has a limp or somebody's got an injury, I can, like Nick and I can go out with the sort boards and really quickly isolate it into the chute and give it the veterinary attention that it needs. Mm -hmm. We did that. We tried doing all those things fully on pasture for four years, five years, and it just the stress levels or just in the middle of a really windy night thinking like, oh God, a tree is going to fall on the on the fence and all the pigs are going to get out. Just knowing that I can close them in at night and just sleep really soundly and then let them back out in the morning. Or when the pastures are too wet, be able to enclose them either fully just into the shed or we have a little space called the lobby that's still a sacrifice area, but you know at least they get fresh air and sunshine. They can run around and root Rode around in wood chips and, and sure. straw. And I'd say just collecting more data about the pigs has been a lot easier. So for instance, now um, on the side of the wagon wheel hub, we've got a chute that runs through a scale. And so every two weeks we run every single pig through the scale so we can track average daily gains and how that's comparing to how much food they're eating. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time to load them up um, and take them in for their one bad day, they're already used to walking through that chute. And so we just open a gate and it rot, and they walk right onto the trailer. Sure. So as we, it's one thing to have 10 pigs fully on pasture, but when you get to our scale with 75, um, 80 pigs, it's, it's just a different thing entirely. So it's, it's been, it's been really wonderful. And then we do get all that wonderful composted bedding yeah. from the, uh, the deep bedded pack, that's been really great to spread on the fields or build new perennial garden beds out of it. And.
1: Yeah. I bet that's an awesome asset. And so that kind of goes, leads into the next part of this whole switch is the soil health part. First of all, you have that nutrient resource that you can help build soil health on, but as far as the pasture management and stuff too, um, how has that improved the pasture?
0: Just way less compassion. Yeah. I mean, every time, like I mentioned earlier, pigs have so much stuff. And so if you added up the square footage of all the the really compacted areas in a in a, any given paddock, so the really compacted areas around their water, around their feeder, under their shade structure, in their, excuse me, in their wallow, it ends up being considerable. And so just being able to eliminate that. Plus, I mean, the, the pigs are grazing on rented land right now, and I just, I don't want to have our landlord come out and see a, a just a deeply pockmarked um yeah. compacted field you know i want to be a good renter sure yeah just being able to more finely tune the rotation so before you'd really have to it it would be it'd be pretty tough to be able to hopscotch around or, or skip around in the field, depending on where the forage is best. Generally we do do uh, sequential grazing right now. So just the pigs graze the next area after the previous paddock. But mm-hmm. if I wanted to, I could close them into the wagon wheel hub, make a brand new laneway to a brand new section sure. of the field, which actually I'm considering doing, considering doing a test flash graze of the warm season annual mix. I didn't really want them to hit that too hard until September when more of the species in there are like the sunflowers are mature, but just for fun, I was thinking about doing a test paddock in there just to see like, okay, how does this regrow? Everything is just a constant experiment around here. Um, But it would be tough to do that with the non, with the, we we need a name for this, just like the standard pasturing, (laughs) fully pastured pig model. I don't know. We'll workshop that. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, I look forward to it. Yeah. The experimenting is definitely something that I, I guess I gathered when I was there is that you're willing to try and always trying new things. I think when I was there, you were experimenting with wood chips over straw or something and as a bedding source. And it's always something new, which is what we need, especially in a field like this, that there's not that much resources maybe available for which is why we're trying to do this podcast mm-hmm. is get some of the information out so yeah. of all the things that you've experimented with from the different trials you've done what are if you were to give a couple of nuggets of wisdom to somebody who might be starting this out some don't do this or you know this might work you know didn't work for us questions any kind of insights that you've gathered in your years of experimentation
0: well two failed well one one failed experiment this from this year and then one just like big struggle that we're having um we, this year, we're going to make a pig spa. So I really don't like wallows. Pigs can't sweat. Um, And so they really do need a lot of shade and a lot of moisture to be able to cool off, especially on these 90 degree days. So last year they had a, a wallow that was big enough to fit, you know, 60 of them. And that was just huge. And within a couple of days, it just got disgusting. I mean. I don't know. I was not happy with, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with the smell. I wasn't happy with the compaction. I mean, they bake, they basically make a little like pond. Mm -hmm. And so you can use that to your advantage if you want a pond, but if you don't want a pond somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we got rid of that. And then this year I was going to build, I built a little uh, shoot, Over to another building that we have on the farm that has a concrete floor, and I was going to just put sprinklers in there so they could still cool off, but not dig a pit. Sure. But immediately when I had that, I was going to make it a free choice thing—just have a sprinkler on a timer and um, let the pigs sort of self-select about what they wanted to be doing: if they wanted to be on their bedding or in the spa or out on pasture. Jared, they immediately turned it into a toilet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, okay, sure.
0: So um, that was not ideal because poop on concrete mm-hmm. without any bedding equals smell and flies. Mm-hmm. And so pretty quickly, I was like, "Well, okay, this is not this is not making me happy." Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of axed that idea. So I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to experiment with ways that. Pigs can get what they need, which is the ability to cool off without a giant wallow. And so this year, when we switched to the automatic waters, um, I do have to clean them out every day. And that makes sort of a pool along the edge of the shed. And so they do seem to be liking to sit in that moist area um, that's just concrete near their waters. So I think we've figured out a happy medium. Um, I go and check on them during the hottest days. And as long as they have plenty of shade... That's, they seem to be, nobody's exhibiting signs of, of heat stress. Um, sure. So I'm thinking that might just be the, the way to go. Another challenge that we're having is still flies. I haven't really dialed in my fly management as, as far as the, the challenge with the deep bedded pack is that it starts composting and it puts out just an extraordinary amount of heat. And I just don't want that heat radiating up from the bottom of the shed Already in the season, when it's ninety degrees, yeah. I do not want it to be a hundred degrees, two inches down in the yeah. bedding. Yeah. And so, right now, the experiment, um, our our wagon wheel hub, the, sh- the the pig shed is divided into three. And so, in one in one third, I've got a deep bedded pack going that I haven't cleaned out. I've just been adding adding more bedding. In the middle, I've got just concrete, and then in the the southern third, I've got more of a dusting of of straw okay. and I've just been watching and observing where they self-select and like to hang out. And so I've, and I've got a, a wireless remote solar powered camera in the barn so I can check on them um, in person, <laughs> but awesome. then throughout the day, yeah. just trying to, trying to notice trends about where they're liking to be and then how that correlates with the weather too. Sure. But I'm just noticing that yeah, fly or poop, poop and pee plus bedding, equals perfect fly habitat. And I've visited other farms that use deep bedding or, you know, have uh, free range hogs, but not pasture. And they just don't seem to have the same fly issues. So I have not figured that out yet. So if any of your listeners want to give me some coaching on fly management, I mean, we've got, we've got fly predators going, we've got fly traps, we've got fly paper, and still it's just mm. too many flies for me. Uh, positive experiments though I guess just the the really diverse paddocks, and letting letting lots of forages go to seed and then reseeding themselves. That's been a really successful experiment that I really love. Yeah. And actually planting forages that they don't necessarily like when they're when they're non-vegetative, and then letting those go to seed and then for a second graze uh, grazing the vegetative state. That's been that's been good. So like the small grains, they're the ones that they're not necessarily loving when they're um, mature, but then as they move through and they run around and trample things, that plants it for the mm-hmm. second graze where they can come back through and sure. and eat those. Uh, well, one we were going to do this year, we were going to do a trial with uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa on deworming okay. um, solutions. We were going to divide the pigs into three. One, one third was going to be no deworming one was going to be the um, Swinex from Dr. Paul's lab, the all-natural one, and then one was going to be Ivermectin. But our feeder pigs, we had a contract that they were all supposed to be a minimum of 80 pounds when they arrived. But when they arrived, some of them were as small as like 40 pounds. And okay. so we just have no wiggle room this year on sure. getting them to size up before slaughter. So we're, we're looking to do that again next year because parasites are definitely an Achilles heel of, of uh, pasturing
1: pigs. Sure. Sure. Well, maybe talk on the health, other health benefits, health concerns of this system that you've developed compared to maybe what you were doing before. Have you seen any other observations as far as health, things that work, things that don't?
0: I have noticed that the pigs definitely get bored and are unhappy when I do have to close them into the wagon wheel hub for a few days at a time because they're so used to being out and being able to frolic around and eat fresh greens. And and as we all know, pigs are very smart and they do get bored really easily. And so I have been finding myself this year, maybe letting them out just a little sooner than maybe I quote unquote should, sure. um, just because, you know, that pig happiness has been winning out. Um, and I also notice more coughs and sneezes developing when they have to be in the wagon wheel hub for too long. Although it, when they have to be in the wagon wheel hub for too long, it's usually because there's been some sort of extreme weather and that sure. can really set off respiratory issues with with pigs as well. So I'm sure. trying to suss out. Is it that they're closed in yeah. or is it that they're you know, there's been a huge temperature shift. Just being able to monitor each pig really carefully as far as their weight goes. I'd love to be able to weigh them every week, but that just ends up taking, you know. Half a day every week and that's that's a bit too much, but mm-hmm. being able to weigh them every other week is that data is super helpful. One simple benefit of the the pig shed wagon wheel hub model is is uh, noticing noticing who's down so if I go out in the morning and everybody is out on pasture except one pig that's laying down, I mean that's a that's a red flag right there like mm-hmm. okay, I need to take a rectal temp I need to mm-hmm. maybe isolate this pig. Whereas on when they're fully on pasture, it's much harder to notice that. I'm yeah. noticing, um, sure. you know, if a pig is just laying down on pasture, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything. But if it's completely yeah. away from its buddies, which mm-hmm. it's not a big deal when you have 10 because you can examine each one of them multiple mm-hmm. times a day. But when you have 75, 80, it's much harder. So I really like that.
1: No, that's a great point. Uh, being able to just see them. I mean, it's one of the benefits we have of moving cattle daily. It's, we roll up a fence and they run right by us. All of them every day, you know, as opposed to spread out all yeah. over a pasture. I mean, it's more just, it's easier to see unusual behaviors when you get into a pattern and one is no longer following that pattern.
0: Absolutely. Which I guess if we were moving pigs every day, we could do that. But man, uh, pig, fully pigs on pasture, I guess some people do attempt that, but I was never able to figure that. I mean, they just aren't ruminants. A lot of people try to treat pigs like ruminants and they just, they just aren't. They yeah. just aren't. They're not migratory animals necessarily like mm-hmm. i'm no wild pig expert but as far as i know like they like to have smaller social groups and have sort of home bases that they move in between yeah um, i'm sure i'm going to get some email from a swine <laughs> expert from a like a feral hog expert and say that that's not true but <laughs> yeah. i do think they like to have a home base that they can come back to and snuggle into mm-hmm. um, and then be able to move to fresh pasture
1: no that that's a Good point, too. And I'm not sure, do they have daily routines where in the morning, like at night in the morning, they're in the shed and then first thing sun's coming up, they're going outside that even though you're maybe not controlling the routine like we are with our fence, that they still have a routine because of the system that you're able to observe differences in?
0: Oh, absolutely. They have such a routine. Kind of depends on the weather. But um, yeah, like I said, I have that camera in the pig shed. So when I wake up, sometimes I wake up at like 3 a.m., 5 a.m. That's the first thing I do. I check the pigs to see what they're doing. And it seems like right as the sun is coming up or maybe even a little early, they all wake up, head out to pasture, um, spend, depending on the temperature, an hour or two out there. And then as it gets hotter, they all come back in and then spend the rest of the day excuse me, especially when it's hot, um, pretty much spend the rest of the day in the shed snoozing. Um, They'll wake up, take a stretch break, have a snack, drink some water, and then go right back to sleep. But then right around five o'clock, six o'clock, that's when they all start heading out to pasture again. And they're not herd animals, but they are definitely social creatures who have a lot of experience, a lot of peer pressure. And so if some of them start heading out, then the rest of them usually do end up following and so I, I do like that they can sell themselves a lot
1: i'm a little jealous of that lifestyle yeah i mean wake up go out to pasture come in take a nap eat a snack you know gosh that sounds like the dream retirement someday
0: <laughs> seriously seriously yeah. they live such a good life um we always joke about how they like they eat better than most americans because their <laughs> their carbs and protein you know their their feed their pea and barley feed is certified organic and it's got mm organic apple cider vinegar in it Mm -hmm. and then their pasture is super diverse and um i don't know if it would qualify as certified organic or not but um or if it would be certifiable or not but then also we have a partnership with featherstone farm where Mm -hmm. every week we go and pick up a couple every anywhere from a couple hundred to a couple thousand pounds of their uh, pig quality organic Vegetables, so they get to feast on Hmm. organic vegetables, and then we, our friends, have an organic orchard, and so we get their uh, their organic apples, and then we go and glean fields and uh, for more vegetables, and go to people's farms and glean their home orchards. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty pretty deluxe. And then they they get uh, organic pastured hard boiled eggs. you know, it's like ridiculous. Yeah.
1: Yep. They eat better than me. I'm sure the, the, the lifestyle and quality of feed is better than me. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk about marketing a little bit. We're running out of time, so I will direct all of our people to, we did a webinar with you last oh, winter, fall sometime. I don't even remember. And so on the SFA YouTube channel, there's a webinar, um, or Dana is on it's, I don't even remember the name. I should have looked it up earlier. Something along the lines of direct marketing, meat-based products or something. And we had a couple other farmers on it. So check that out. But would you mind giving a brief high-level view overview of how you've built your market, some of the tips and tricks that you found to be really successful in building out a direct market for your pork?
0: Yeah, start small. Um, have really, really, really good meat. Um, go after that super primo flavor profile that people are going to rave about because then they'll tell their friends and family. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I said, we started with three and have gradually over, we we went from three to 10 to 25 to 40 to 50 to 73 and now 75. And so that that gradual growth curve has helped us find new customers slowly each year, Mm -hmm. maintain a fun, vibrant social media presence. I mean, what we do is super photogenic and people love pig uh, videos, Um, people love Getting to know you as a person, so just be yourself, be your weird, quirky self on social media. Other than that, uh, we've we've tried paid advertising in the past, like in the various directories and stuff, and that really mm-hmm. hasn't gotten us all that many customers. Mostly, it's just people telling their friends and family. Sure, um, we try to do nice little touches, like send postcards. We usually give them a gift at the end of the year, like a mm-hmm. set of um, custom paintings that we have done of our pigs as note cards. That's awesome. Um, just try to make people feel appreciated, and then yeah, just charge. Char our our approach has just been raise the like the absolute best of the best that we know how to do, and then charge really premium prices. And within that premium, it you know with as long as you have a, a good profit margin, it gives you that flexibility to to go the extra mile of doing all the other fun. You know, it pays for your time to do the social media, it pays for your time to. Pay more attention to your customers. Yeah, we just try to... We we couldn't do what we do without our amazing customers. And so we try to behave thusly.
1: Yeah. I, that is an interesting point that I, I want to talk about too, is the pricing. Because I, when I talk to people starting yep. out direct marketing businesses, they're a lot of times going to, okay, well, the store is worth this. So, you know, I can... Even at a Whole Foods or at a local thing or whatever, grass-based, this is the price. And... I need to I need to compete with that they, they have the same thing in their mind that they feel the need to compete with these um, you've gone beyond that to charging what you need to make it work for you and to pay you adequately and fairly for your time how did you overcome that mental challenge of feeling a need to compete with a, a store a wholesale type store system and uh, and how did your customers feel about that as well as you built your market
0: yeah I would say um, yes and no to what you just said um, so when we first started pricing, when we you know after we sort of did the couple of experimental years and we we got serious about raising pigs, I honestly I looked around and figured out, okay, what's the maximum amount anybody is trying to charge um, in the state and successfully doing it, and I matched that mm-hmm. um, because I knew we were going to try to go for the best of the best of the best, and people always say like, well, know your costs of production and know your, and then set your prices uh, that way. And it's like, okay, yes. And maybe when you're a beginner, you're not doing everything very efficiently and you're at scale and maybe sure you can try charging $50 a pound for your pork because maybe as a beginner, that's what it's going to take to make 10 pigs profitable, but no one's going to pay that. Mm -hmm. And so I figured just know your quality Look for other people who are successfully raising pigs or whatever you're doing in that same quality sort of bracket and see what they're charging and either match that or go above it if you're gonna try to take things to the next level. and that that helps you get sort of a realistic starting point. And I would say always go higher um if if you're super, super quality minds, if your mindset is all about quality and customer care, Mm-hmm. then try to go higher because it's easier to drop your prices later. Yeah. If you're going in for like the, well, I'm going to be the farmer who cuts corners or, you know, cuts out the fluff and I'm just going to help people. I hate marketing and I'm going to be the people who, I'm going to be the farmer who helps people fill their freezers for super cheap and I'm not going to make all that much money doing it. Um, then sure, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd say that's, that's how we set our prices and- sure it's not paying for the whole farm right now. It pays for, you know, it definitely pays for my time. It definitely pays the mortgages uh, or the mortgage on our farmland pays off all the expenses that has, that have to do with the pigs and then pays for um, investments that we're making into our systems. But um, we definitely rely on, on my husband's off-farm income and, and insurance. Um, and that's another thing. If you have off-farm income, I think people's knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, well, you have off-farm income. You shouldn't charge super premium prices. But there are a lot of people out there who are trying to make a go of it and don't have that flexibility with of off-farm income. Mm-hmm. And my theory is that if you do have that flexibility of off-farm income, that means it's it's sort of a privilege you need to respect. And sometimes when you don't have any flexibility and you don't have off-farm income, the lever that you can pull to sell more product is just dropping your price. And I figured those of us who do have a partner who works off the farm, we need to be setting, as long as the quality backs it up, we need to be setting our prices really, really correctly. Because, at, you know, other people who don't have the privilege of off-farm income, they can always at least say, you know, well, at least I don't charge as much as Nettle Valley Farm. You know? <laughs> so I think as farmers, we need to we need to collude a little bit more and and hold the line as far as like our prices we really need to be charging what our product is worth especially especially if you have off-farm income Mm -hmm. Um, just to make it a little bit easier for the folks out there who don't it's counterintuitive but i feel really i really feel strongly about that
1: that's a really intriguing it shows how intentional you are about your thought towards all of this because that that's just an interesting way i mean it gives the opportunity for you're not trying to you have a lot of people who maybe have extra money would say well i'm going to go undercut the competition you know drive them out of business but you're saying because i have extra money i'm going to charge a higher premium price to give opportunity for people to come in beneath me because i'm not dependent on every sale that wow yeah (laughs) that's very intriguing mindset and It just shows how intentional you are about your thought process. Thanks for sharing that. Cause I I never would have considered something like that. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to think about that later. That's, that's fascinating. I'll probably
0: have a lot of people who argue with me on that and that's just fine. But that's sort of where I've come to at this point is that, um, those of us who have the flexibility, um, you know, it takes a hell of a lot more work to sell pork. That's as, as you know, not expensive, but as valuable as ours. We're charging six or seven bucks a pound, hanging weight plus processing plus delivery, and it takes way more time and effort um, and money to sell that pork. Um, but I can do that because I've yeah. my husband works off the farm, mm-hmm. so it's just it's my responsibility to do that instead of just being like oh fire sale.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, I'm sure you could sell hundreds had you come in at a price point that is much more competitive. But you, uh, that's. That's just intriguing. No, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, on the business side, I know you talked, Nick maybe does a little bit of the financing and stuff. So I just, in general, um, running a business, one question I have, off, when you started, what did you prioritize as far as investments in the farm? Or if someone was starting out, maybe didn't have a building already, what would you prioritize as far as equipment, infrastructure, um, investments on, on a limited budget?
0: Oh, Yeah. Well for us for my specific context you know I'm farming with a chronic illness like I do not have as much energy and resilience as people who have never had Lyme disease mm-hmm. um so for me honestly it was investing in things that helped our help my health and energy um and resilience so for instance we were hand feeding um you know it's like Hundreds of pounds of feed um, by hand, mm-hmm. and getting jostled around by pigs. And I was like, "Okay, we only have twenty five pigs. It probably doesn't justify investing in these Osborne wheel feeders." But you know what? I don't have as much energy as other people, so I am gonna I am gonna invest in that. And then we probably got a tractor before we absolutely needed to, mm-hmm. um, but it has been such a godsend instead of, you know, clearing fence lines with a scythe, which I did before (laughs) um, or a weed whip before, uh, which is what I did before we had a tractor. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's been, that's worked out. We got a five-year loan for at 0% interest and it worked out to be about 30 bucks a day to, to pay for that tractor. And it's been worth every penny. I think there's a lot of pressure among the like, Permaculture restoration, ag, res- regenerative ag, people to like do all the earthworks and plant trees and I-, I don't know, do all the the that stuff first. And I'm sort of more in the the Greg Judy camp of just like spend the money that you need on fencing, water, um, like really dial in those systems because you're not going to know where you want to put your earthworks or where you want to plant your trees until later on down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, like it's sort of embarrassing, but we've been here for six or seven years now and I haven't planted a single tree. I've killed a lot of trees, uh, intentionally to make more pasture. Mm -hmm. And I'm just now starting to get a feel for, okay, how do we want to do some of these more permanent like pond installations or, or tree planting? Um, just give yourself some time on that and really start just focus on your on making money and building your customer base and learning how to take care of your customers and take care of your livestock before you worry about some of that other stuff that's what i'd say yeah flexible mobile infrastructure
1: yeah all oh, that i forget now what Joel Soliton caused it but it's all about flexible mobile Movable, yeah, stuff, but I suck mm-hmm. at keeping these podcasts condensed because I'm always intrigued and go off on tangents and go down rabbit trails, but I, I do want to talk about your incubator farm a bit, what you're doing there, why you're doing it. So I'll just let you share about it and the the origin and and what it's evolved to and why.
0: Sure, yeah, well, Nick and I, it's really it's important for us to pay it forward. that's a that's a big part of our sort of way of moving through the world. I got incubated when I was a young vegetable farmer down at a, an incubator farm program that was in Northfield. And it just, that's where I was able to make really important, um, mistakes and learn and try things out in a, in a pretty protected, low cost environment where I didn't have a mortgage payment and I didn't have a tractor payment. And so we knew that when we got, when we invested in land, we wanted to bu- get more land, um, and just have a little bit more space than we absolutely needed. So we could sort of pay that, pay that experience forward. Um, Also, we're just sort of, um, we like people and like having people around and like learning about other people's enterprises. So we've, we've tried to be clear from the beginning. This is not an apprenticeship. It's not an internship. It's not a job. Um, The folks who come here and incubate really need to have their own vision, their own entrepreneurial spirit their own ideas and we'll support in whatever ways we can like help with marketing. Like we um, help our incubatees sell their livestock um, or their meat to our customers. Cause you know, a, someone who wants to spend money on our pastured pork is, is likely to want to spend money on forest raised goat or pasture chickens, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, yeah, that that's, that was the, the idea behind it. Um, the model itself is, folks pay uh, or pay quote unquote for the program with doing four hours or so a half a half day of work three times a month for half a year for half the year um, as far as that's the payment for the access to the land our ranger um, I'll do uh, I'll help them out with the tractor when they need it they've got access to our truck and our trailer and just you know Mm -hmm. all of our hand tools and all the equipment like that in our in our barns and then also folks can choose to to live in our house too and that's just a separate rental room and board agreement and yeah it's definitely it's definitely a challenge i mean this is the the end of our our third year with our first group of incubatees and it's been a, a steep learning curve i mean people are people are tough. Communication is is tough. And I think we've done a really good job as a, a cohort and as a group of working through all the challenges that come with trying to farm and live um, in more of a community setting. And so I'm really proud of us that we've, we've learned a lot together. And I'm happy to say that both uh, young farmers that are incubating with us are graduating, quote unquote, this year and both moving on to running their own enterprises on land bases that are are close by. And I guess that's another motivation that Nick and I had for running this program is that just helping other young farmers get started who will then hopefully stay in the area and just keep adding to the really cool um, local food and farming community that we have here in the Driftless. And yeah, it feels it's, it's great. It's a success. We've got two more young farmers now in the area which feels really good
1: well that's awesome and, and as far as what you're getting for what you're offering it's it's very reasonable very affordable start for some of these folks which may otherwise have been extremely difficult so really just awesome model what you're trying to do it and and would you recommend that i mean is that something that you you talked about the challenges a little bit but it is that is that something you're you think we need more of or what are your thoughts on on that system
0: we absolutely need more of it. I think we need all different types of incubator farms run by all different types of people. I mean, I, I think like our farm really isn't set up for veg, for annual um, veg production. We don't have the infrastructure. So we need vegetable farm uh, incubator farm programs. We need people who have thousands of acres or, you know, hundreds of acres. So somebody running cattle can really get started. Um, that's not something that we can support here. And I think there's different kinds of incubator farm programs. Like we have sort of the informed sink or swim. So if you want to come here and start a vegetable farm, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why you really shouldn't, you know, we've got incre- incredible deer pressure and uh, don't have much infrastructure, but if you really want to be here and you like us and you want to do vegetables, like Cool. I'm going to tell you, like I said, all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. But then if you still really want to, I'm going to let you do it and make all of your own mistakes. Cause that's an important part of yeah. the learning process, but other incubator farm programs might take a more sheltered approach of just saying like, no, that's not going to work here. It's not going to be a good fit for us. And that'll, you know, different, different people with different um personalities and characteristics. That'll be a better fit. I will say, running an incubator farm program is not for everybody. Like a lot of farmers get into farming because they don't like dealing with people and they don't like communicating and they don't like conflict. And you have to be really willing to just like dig into uh, conflict and emotional issues. Any, I mean, anytime you're learning, you're, you're working or farming or just, yeah, just working. doesn't even have to be farming with other people, Like a a mentor of mine in the decora area says, if you're not in conflict, you're not in community and um, you have to have those skills or at least be willing to really work on those skills to be able to think of systems that that keep you communicating well. Not systems that prevent, some systems that prevent conflict, but then systems of how to work through conflict and you have to be the type that can accept feedback and give feedback Um, one of the things that's really helped us be more successful is we have an outside of the house program facilitator. Um, Martha McFarland is a a bison farmer and she lives over an hour away from us, but she's been our program facilitator from the beginning so that when, whenever we have a struggle within the program about systems or about communication, she's there to be sort of an outside mediating force and I also think it's really important. She has the ability to tell me to shape up. Um, I think a lot of communal farms or, or efforts like this fall apart because the person who has all the power, you know, the landowners or the person running the program, doesn't have anyone to tell them to shape up or do something mm-hmm. differently or to mediate conflict. And I think that's been that's been a helpful thing. Yeah. I also think it's important that anyone who wants to run an incubator farm program really closely examine whether or not you could really handle somebody on your farm doing something that you know a lot about because chances are they're going to want to do it differently than you. And I sure. think that's been one of the, the, the successful aspects of our farm is that the two young farmers who've incubated with us have run in- enterprises that I don't really know anything about. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's bit us in the butt because like, for instance, I'm, I'm just like not familiar with say biosecurity issues with ruminants and that sort of bit us in the butt this year um with a yoni's issue but in many other ways it's just sort of like all right i'm here to talk to you about the things that i do know things about like marketing um and Mm -hmm. bookkeeping but other than that you're free to figure things out and i'm not i'm not tempted to tell them what to do
1: no that's fascinating and one thing kind of a theme i've followed pulling out of everything from your production model to your marketing choices and pricing to your incubator farm is just intentionality. And maybe that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but there's always been a word that I've found a lot of meaning in is being intentional about every decision you make. And really, I I see that in a lot of what you do and and the directions that you're going is not just, uh, you know, by happenstance, it's very intentional. So if someone was to pull something out of this, there's a lot of good nuggets of wisdom. That's something that I see as a very key and integral part of your success. So uh, we are pushed up on, on an hour here. And so I, I want to respect your time and and wrap this up soon. But I, I want to get one question is if you were starting over or as you work with somebody who is doing this or maybe just starting for themselves, any major tips, tricks, things that uh, just as a general for somebody starting this thing that you're doing and, and down the path of what you've done that you've gained over the seven years that you've been doing it?
0: A few things. If you're like me and you're super impatient and super stubborn, you're gonna be tempted to rush to get a farm. Um, don't rush. Be as patient as you possibly can. Like our land is wonderful and I love it, and it's super challenging. Um, but I also was just so desperate to get started that you know I was just really impatient and probably bought land that yeah it's just really challenging. So be be as patient as you can. Um, I realized that getting land, any land at all is super hard. So that's why I say, as you can. Also, um, if you're super impatient and stubborn like me, resist the urge to uh, start a farm before working for a bunch of other people who have experience in your enterprise. Like I've never worked for another pastured hog farmer. And that, um, I think, has helped me in some ways that I've been able to freely just come up with things on my own. You know, obviously I've, I've leaned on uh, a lot of resources like Facebook, pasture pig groups, and I have several really amazing mentors who have helped me out quite a bit, but there's some basics that would have been really helpful <laughs> for me if that I would have picked up, um, just working for other people. And I'm trying to sort of, uh, catch up after the fact mm-hmm. by woofing, um, all over the country for other farmers. And then, like I said, getting mentors. And don't quit your day job. Um, it is really nice to be able to have that flexibility of cash flow, especially in the early years, to be able to invest in in nicer equipment that you necessarily you wouldn't necessarily be able to do if you didn't have that off firm cash mm-hmm. flow. Um, but I get it if you're if that's your goal, you know, <laughs> don't don't yeah, have yeah. it's really, really helpful to have that um, that off firm income in their, in the early years. So I'd say, don't be impatient and don't be stubborn like me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do as I say, I love it.
0: It's
1: all
0: worked out with a lot of luck and support. And, uh, yeah,
1: no, that's great. I I love it. And I, I want to give you a chance to plug your social media, which is awesome. I love following the videos and photos on that. Um, but a couple of reminders for our listeners is the YouTube video that I talked about where she, she talked a lot of more on what she's done for marketing and actually how I met her in the first place I was going out to her farm to do a soil health case study interview and kind of on-farm visit. And so that's available at our website, sfa-mn.org under the soil health case studies in 2020. So check that out to learn a little bit more or get a different view of kind of what she's doing. But uh, lastly, just, yeah, how can people find you and, and share whatever you'd like. For people to, to take a look at.
0: For sure. Yeah. We'd um we love chatting with other people who are interested about pastured pigs. So our website is nettlevalleyfarm.com. And then we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can either follow me personally, that's Grow Gather Graze on Instagram, or then our farm page is uh, just Nettle Valley Farm on Instagram and then on Facebook and and Instagram. Awesome. Uh, for for the farm, both both things. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dana. I really appreciate your time today uh, and just talking about what you do, which is awesome.
0: Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.